Okay, today we're going to talk about the mystery of marriage. The mystery of marriage. By the way, just before we read the scripture, some of you might, because I use the M word, you might tune me out for the rest of the time. So, even if you're not married, please pay attention to what the Bible has to say about this very, very important subject. Okay, because some of you aren't physically married yet, but one day you will be spiritually married. And even if you have the gift of singleness, you will one day be married to the great groom himself. There is great applicability in this passage, even for you. Okay? Those of you who are married already, there's great application in this passage for you too. So I hope you will. It applies to every one of you. Some of you will one day be married. So there's, there's great application for you here. Anyway, so let's read from God's Word, the words of the living God from Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What a glorious passage. Notice the word mystery is mentioned right there in verse 32. So, here's a question for you to consider. What is the mystery of marriage? What is the mystery of marriage? Well, the mystery is simply this, my friends. The meaning of human marriage is based on another greater marriage that is designed by God in heaven, and it was designed before creation, and is namely the marriage of Christ to the church, or shall we say Jesus to his bride. So look what the Apostle Paul says right there in verse 28. Because he says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Great words, powerful words. What, what he says there is that a husband's love for his wife is like loving himself because she is like his own body. And Christ's love for the church is like loving himself then because we are part of his body, if you're a Christian, that is. And there's a great comparison here because a husband's oneness with his wife is like Christ's oneness with his bride, the church. And so it's interesting there in verse 31 that Paul actually goes back to the very beginning where God institutes the first, the first institution of, of the family coming from Genesis 2, verse 24, is a quote from Genesis 2, 24. That's why there's quotation marks in your Bible there. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In other words, a man's love for his wife is like love to himself. A man's love for his wife is like love to himself. And the reason is, my friends, because God designed marriage so that that one flesh union would be created. For example, if 
Lori and I are one flesh because of the covenant of marriage, then my love for her is, a, is, is actually a love to me. Because we're one. Does that make sense? I'm loving myself as I love my wife. Now that much was certainly not a mystery in the Old Testament. That much was revealed right there in the text of Genesis. So a husband and wife are one flesh. That was right there at the beginning. But Paul says here in Ephesians 5.32, this mystery is great. So what is he talking about? What, what's the mystery? Well, he goes on to define the mystery. He defines it as, as he says, I am speaking, so take up, sit, notice, take notice here, here's the definition. I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. That's it. So the mystery was that human marriage is a picture of the union of Christ with his bride. And so the new perspective then on the mystery is that the church is the body of Christ because she's the wife of Christ. Do you, do you see that connection? So the proposition I, uh, that, that we have from the text today is this, my friends, that God wants human marriage to be a picture of the union of Christ, uh, of Christ with his bride, the church. So the... The temporal marriages of this earth are to be pointing to the greater realities, the long-lasting eternal reality of the spiritual marriage. So God wants the human marriage to be a picture of the union of Christ with His bride. And so the the, the next progressive question I, I have for you to consider is this. What does then it mean? What does it mean to be the wife of Christ or the bride. And if we want to know who we are as the bride, this body of Christ, if we want to know what that means to be the church and then to live like the church, then you need to learn from this passage here. What does it mean to be the wife of Christ? And by the way, if you're a Christian, the Bible says you are a part of this bride if, you're, if your faith is in Christ alone, you're a part of this bride. So what does it then mean to have Christ as your husband? Well, the Bible actually reveals at least five things of what it means for us to be the wife of Christ. So let me quickly give you five things of what it means to be the wife of Christ. Number one, Christ loved his bride before she was attractive. I'm curious, guys, those of you who are married, how many of you got married because your wife was super ugly? You, 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 no, no, please don't, no, no raising hands, right? You, you, you just purposely went around the world looking for the most unattractive woman in the world. No, you didn't do that. But notice what verse 25 says. Because it says, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her. (laughs) Now notice the order there. The order is really important. See, what comes first is not the attractiveness. What comes first is the love. And it's a choice, by the way, an unconditional love. Christ loved, and then that love moved Christ to do something. He gave himself. And then in verse 36, or sorry, 26, it says, the purpose of that love was to sanctify and cleanse his wife. And in verse 27 shows the effect of that sanctifying love was to get rid of those ugly spots and all the wrinkles. And he makes his wife beautiful. Do you see that? Do you see the order, the progression? So the love comes before the beauty. But in our earthly relationships, we usually do that around the other way, don't we? (laughs) Right? I mean, I went to a Christian university. I I mean, it it felt like a a marriage, um, you know, factory. That's the way it felt. Like, you know, the, the joke in the guy's dormitory was, you know, watch out for that girl because she's just here to get her MRS degree. 
Right. There were some girls, there were some girls that way. Like, whoa, run away from her. Some guys were that way. You know, they only went there to get married. You had a lot of good choices. You know, I had like 3,000 lovely girls to choose from. We were supposed to be all Christians. What a wonderful place. But Christ didn't choose his wife the way we usually do. See, he didn't look for an attractive woman. He didn't look for an intelligent woman. He didn't look for a funny woman. He's not even looking for a faithful woman. What he does, he goes, he looks for the unlikely woman here. <laughs> Very interesting. And then what does he do? So he finds the unlikely, unattractive woman, and he makes her attractive and wise and faithful, and it's all at his own cost. It's very expensive. And his love for the, the church did not begin as a love of admiration. His first love for his bride was not a, a response to her amazing beauty. <laughs> In fact, she had none. None. No beauty whatsoever. His first love for us was something that was free. It was unconditional. It's the love of an unconditional choice, what we call the doctrine of election, that is described at the beginning of the book of Ephesians. By the way, remember, theology always drives your methodology. We had all this beautiful theology right at the beginning of Ephesians. Do you remember what chapter 1 said? Look at it, if you've forgotten. Ephesians 1, verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. See, my friends, Christians were not chosen because they were holy. No, God chose the Christians because He planned to make us holy. Do you see the difference? He chose the bride to make her holy. And we've been loved with a, a love of unconditional regeneration that is described over in chapter 2. Here's how God describes it after giving all this ugly stuff in the first few verses. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Wow. And so, that's amazing. God chose a dead woman to be his son's wife. How many guys go and pick dead women to get married to? But that's what he did. Dead women do not begin by fulfilling conditions. They can't. And so they begin by being raised from the dead and being born again. That's the only way. And that is what happened to every member who is in the body of Christ. And so before we could even look pretty or sound wise or be faithful, what do we see here? It's the electing love of God choose us, and then it's the regenerating love of God who raises the dead so there can be life. And so my friends... Just ponder that for a moment. God's desire for, for my wife is that she be strengthened by a love, hopefully coming from me, that is peculiar to her, it, it, hopefully different from the, just the general love I, I might have for uh, other people in this world. Hopefully it's different. And so the love of a man for a wife is a very special covenant love that is shared by no other woman in my life. Yes, I love my mother, for example, and I love my children and, and, and so forth, right? But, but that, you understand that love's different, and it should be. That's appropriate. But one of the great tragedies today in the church is Christians have learned to enjoy a love from God that's, that is no more precious than just the general love that God has for all the world. Right, you, you know John 3.16, right? God loved the world. That's just the general love for the world. It's certainly true, but, but many years the church has kind of slipped farther and farther away from that glorious truth that the wife of Jesus Christ is loved with an electing covenant 
love that is different from God's love for the world. It is different, very different. Need to distinguish those two. So yes, God loves the world. John 3.16 says so. Yes, God gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. But it's also a, a very sad day when a wife only knows herself loved with the love that, her hus- that, that a husband has for other women. And so the marriage between Christ and his wife is, is weak to the degree that she only feels loved with that general love. And so the first thing it means for us here to be the wife of Christ is that Christ loved us before we were ever attractive. He loved us, and He loves us still with a a distinguishing, different covenant love. That's precious. It's special. Take it to heart. But the second thing it means to be the wife of Christ is that Christ gave Himself for His wife, the church. So notice, again, the progression. Love comes first, and then He acts. He gives Himself. Christ did not win his wife uh, the way you men may have done. I don't know. It would be interesting to talk to you guys afterward. What what sort of crazy things, what what kind of crazy things did you do to have to win the love of your wife? I I would love that conversation. Because usually usually guys get Twitter pated and they do all kinds of crazy things because, you know, the hormones are flowing and we we're just attracted and, and we want to marry that person, and we do weird, dumb things sometimes. We do. I, I raise my hand. I'm one of them, okay? But <clears throat> Christ didn't do any dumb things. But what he did do is he paid a dowry for her, and that dowry was his life. So to be the wife of Christ means to be loved with a self-sacrificing love, and it acted by dying for us, while we were helpless and sinful and ungodly, and we were actually his enemies. Remember, we read that back in Ephesians 2. And in fact, uh, it, it mentions the same thing in Romans 5, verse 8, right? While we were sinners, Christ died for us. <laughs> in other words, he did not simply die for an unworthy woman. He didn't simply die for a reluctant woman. <laughs> but for a woman who found him repulsive. This woman found Christ disgusting and revolting. And so don't miss the force of that, because Paul says right there in verse 25 that Christ gave himself for the church. In other words, what does that mean, Christ gave himself for the church? He died, and in his dying, he had the church especially in view. And it was for her, uniquely for her, and especially for her that he died. So the powerful saving effect of the cross then was directed to his fiancée, his, his future bride, who would not only, uh, uh, is, is not only unattractive, but Christ, you know, this, this future bride was looking at him as, someone repulsive and disgusting and didn't want to be with him. He especially gave his life for her. And that is what it means to be the wife of Christ. Number three. What does it mean to be the wife of Christ? It means being cleansed by him from our greatest problem, which is the guilt of our sin. That's our greatest problem, the guilt of our sin. Because what do we see? He gives his life for her in verse 25, and in verse 26, what's he trying to accomplish? He wants to sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. So, if if you're one of those people who have to be flattered in order to feel good, then the marriage between Christ and his wife is not going to make you feel good. This is not one of those kind of, uh, you know, have your best life now messages. It's not. Right? This is not going to, you know, puff your head up. It's a highly unflattering picture here 
what does Christ have to do? Let me spell it out for you, because it says it right there. But what does he do? His future wife is dirty, unattractive, and so he has to bathe her in order to marry her. We were unattractive, not beautiful, my friends. Ephesians 2 reminds us we're his enemies. We're not his friends. And we were dirty with the guilt of sin just all over us and inside us. And what does he do? He chooses us, loves us, dies for us, raises us to life, and then cleanses us. He gives us a bath, so to speak. And in the process, what's he accomplished? He takes away that filth. He takes away your guilt. He bathes us, makes us clean before a holy God. So now you're acceptable in his sight. By the way, the water of baptism is a representation of the spiritual washing. You understand it's not referring to believer's baptism. It's not referring to you taking a shower with literal H2O. But but notice that the cleansing from sin in verse 26 there comes from this self-sacrificing of Christ that, that is taking place in verse 25. And, and that's the way it is with baptism, in a sense. It's representing a dying with Christ. See, when some when, when those of you who are baptized in water, real water, H2O, right? It, it's picturing something. You're buried with him in that water. And it represents being then cleansed by Christ through the, the very death in the water. So you're getting buried, you're put under the ground, so to speak. And immersion in water provides that perfect symbolic combination, doesn't it? It's the combination of dying with Christ and being cleansed with Christ. And then it has to be combined together. Because it's in the death of Christ that we see that the power of the cleansing take place. You have to die. 1 John 1, 7 says it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. So baptism is representing a burial and a bath because that burial is the bath. It's where the cleansing takes place. But there's a fourth point we need to think about here. What does it mean to be the wife of Christ? Being the wife of Christ means you are being made progressively holy. Uh, This is called the doctrine of sanctification. So there's a lot of confusion on sanctification. So so let me just park here for a little bit and, and make sure we're all crystal clear together. What is progressive holiness or progressive sanctification? What is progressive sanctification? Well, in verse 27, it's described as, say, be holy and blameless and without spot or wrinkle. And you say, well, well, wait a minute, I'm not to that point yet. I know, none of us are. (laughs) None of us are to that point yet. But you will be one day. One day you will be glorified. And so we're in this process of being sanctified, being made holy as He is holy. And so the Bible says, in some cross-references, that you are to abstain from sin. Like in Ephesians, or sorry, in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says the will of God is your sanctification. That's God's will for your life, your sanctification being set apart from your sin unto God. Uh, Titus 2 talks about being zealous for good works. That's also God's will for you. And so, in, in Hebrews 10, it talks about this progressive sanctification. In, in the English words, it says you are being sanctified. So it's this ongoing process. You understand, you know, just because you become a Christian doesn't mean that you are glorified and ultimately sanctified yet. No, you, you're not. So it's an ongoing process. So what's the basis of this sanctification or this progressive holiness? Well, the the basis has to do all with Christ's death. See, in Titus 2, it says that Jesus gave Himself that He might redeem us from every lawless deed. Every lawless deed. Really? Yep. And some people look at that and say, really, is it necessary for Christ to do that? (laughs) 
Well, here's the way Hebrews 12 says it. Pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So you tell me, based on Hebrews 12, verse 14, is it necessary? Pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Yeah, that's necessary, isn't it? So then, who is the agent? In other words, who is the 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 one or thing doing this work in you? Well, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, you are sanctified by the Spirit. And according to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, it says, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness. So, who's the agent? I purposely put a capital A on your page. So, because I want to emphasize the Holy Spirit here. Right? Because there is no way that you can do what 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, cleanse yourself from all filthiness, uh, unless the Holy Spirit is the one sanctifying you. It, It isn't going to happen by yourself. So you say, okay, that's great. Holy Spirit's the agent. I need to cleanse myself from all this filthiness, so how is this going to happen in my life? Glad you asked, because in John 17, 17, Jesus said, he talks about sanctification. He says, he's praying, he's praying for you, and he says, God, sanctify them, And, and look what he says next. He says, sanctify them, By your truth, your word is truth. So what's the means of your sanctification? Your holiness? It's the word of God, the Bible, the scripture. And that's why it's imperative, my friend, that you read it, that you meditate upon it, you study it, you memorize it. Because that's the means, is the word. But the Bible also says this in Acts 26. It's interesting. Listen, Jesus said, you're sanctified by faith in me. Wow. You're sanctified by faith in me. Yeah. So, faith. So there's your means. Your two means is the Word of God and faith. That's how you're sanctified. I hope you found that helpful. But there's one more point. Number five. What does it mean to be the wife of Christ? Being the wife of Christ means being finally presented to Christ as his perfect wife. You, you become his perfect wife. You're not perfect yet. But you are being sanctified. you progressively becoming holy as he is holy. Because look what verse 27 says. Here's the purpose of Christ's love and giving himself, in verse 27 so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's the reason why Christ does this. Now some people look at this and say, See? Look look at that! Christ is deficient. He's a lonely old man and he needs some help. What? (laughs) You missed the point. Is God deficient? Is God lonely? I mean, what was the Trinity doing in in past eternity when there was no world and no universe? Was he lonely? No. (laughs) Was he deficient? No. He wasn't needy. Not at all. In, In fact, all of that saving work there is to fit us to reveal him better and to enjoy him. And so, my friends, that is a truth worth rejoicing in. Are you? I hope you are. So that's the, this glorious spiritual relationship that lasts for all eternity. And right in the midst of that context of the, the, the everlasting relationship of Christ and His bride, He, he kind of gets down and reminds us, right, going right back to the beginning in Genesis 2, verse 24, And he shows us what is God's plan for the temporal marriage, the temporal relationship. So just let me just point this out to you. Okay? What is God's plan for marriage? So for you single people, three points. God gives you three points 
It's not this simple, okay? But it can be. Don't overcomplicate it, right? Those of you who are married, you need to be reminded of these things and see, do you fit the pattern? Do you, do you fit this blueprint? Okay? So those of you who want to be married, who might be married one day, this is, this is really good advice. This is God's plan. Okay? Number one is that married couples leave their parents. You leave your parents, Ezra. Okay? That's what it says right there, doesn't it? Verse 31. Therefore, a man will live forever in his father and mother's house and play computer games for the rest of his life and expect his mother to bring him sandwiches so he he doesn't even have to get up from the computer. Is that what it says? No. Shall leave his father and mother. So what does that mean to leave your parents then? (laughs) You need to understand that. It doesn't mean that you abandon your parents, okay? Or you utterly forsake them for the rest of their lives and say, you know, I'm not calling you mother and father, and I'm not going to email you. I'm not going to come see you anymore. I'm totally abandoning you. No, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that you, you have to make some great geographical move. You don't have to move to London or Africa or Australia or You don't have to have a huge body of water between you and your mother. That's not what it means. By the way, living too close to parents may make it more difficult to leave. That's true. (laughs) But it is also possible to actually leave your parents and, and still live next door to them. Okay? You could even live on the same property and still leave your parents. In fact, that was a very common thing back in Bible times, right? They would often build, they would just add another room onto the father's house. Just go get a heap of stones and stack up your stones, and you live right next to your parents. That was very common. Nothing wrong with that. But you also need to understand, it it could be possible you could live thousands of kilometers away and still not leave your parents. Right? Have you ever met that kind of a person? Right? Where... I mean, I mean, she might be living way over in London, but, you know, constant Facebook, social media, calling my mother, you know, it's, it's just, you know, hours every day. There's people like that, right? Even though there's thousands of kilometers distance. So let me give you some good marriage advice uh, that I found from Dr. Wayne Mack. Uh, he, he says, leaving means that you're establishing an adult relationship with your parents. An adult key word there, adult relationship with your parents, which is different when you're a kid. It means you, you, you have to be more concerned about your spouse's ideas and her thoughts, her opinions, her practices than those of your parents. Okay, for example, I could be really, I could give some personal funny examples here if I wanted to, but uh, guys, when you get married, those of you who aren't married yet, don't ever say this to your to your new wife. Don't ever say, you know, my mother does it a better way than than you do. Ooh, or you know, my mother cooks it this way. Maybe you ought to consider doing that. Ooh, you know, don't 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 get into comparisons. That's not good. Even if you're thinking it, just keep your mouth shut. That's my advice. Uh, it means that you must not be slavishly dependent on your parents. So yes, mother needs to cut the apron strings, but you 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 might need to help your mother, right? It, your affections, your approval, your assistance, uh, the, the counsel, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, can't, you can't have a slavish dependence upon your parents for that when you're married. It means that you must eliminate any bad attitude toward toward your parents. Otherwise, what happens is you're still tied emotionally to them. It means you have to stop trying to change your spouse. (laughs) Uh, By the way, simply because your parents do not like him being that way, right? That's dangerous. You're not leaving your parents. You know, if... You know, if your uh, if your mother comes and says, 
Imagine being married. You just got married, and then your your mother comes and says, "Hey, uh, you know, you really need to work on him in this area." Yeah, that that's not going to be helpful to the relationship. It, it means you you make your marriage relationship your top priority above all other human relationships. That's what it means to leave. That's what the Bible's talking about here. And by the way, for parents. Those of you who are parents, let me give you some godly advice here. Your goal then is if you have children, is then to prepare your children to leave. Don't cripple them emotionally, spiritually, or any other way by holding on to them, particularly mothers. Cut the apron strings. You don't want your child to be with you for the rest of your life physically or emotionally. And by the way, for for you parents, prepare yourself for the day when your children leave the home and get married. Get ready. Don't be surprised when you find yourself an empty nester. I've, I've heard some disastrous stories from empty nesters. An empty nester is just someone who's all the, all the children have flown the coop, right? And then they're just sitting there all by themselves and they're looking at each other Saying, who are you? Wow, now what do we talk about? We've we've all we've talked about for the last thirty years is their children. I don't know what to do now. It's one of the greatest causes of divorce. And so, parents, when your children have married, then the other thing you need to be concerned about is don't try to run their lives. Oh, that happens. The in law you, you've all heard the in laws jokes, right? There is some truth to the in-law jokes. Fortunately, I have great in-laws. Love my in-laws. They don't apply to me. But um, sadly, some of those are true. But there, there's, there's the second thing that God says here. You don't just leave. There's more to this. God's blueprint or plan for the marriage is right there. So therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So married couples are to hold fast to each other. So it's not just the man holding fast to his wife, but you realize that the wife needs to hold fast to her husband as well. And so marriage is not a matter of just blind chance here. It's not just randomness. It's actually a deliberate choice. Holding fast, you're choosing to hold on to something here. Marriage is not merely a matter of convenience either. It's obedience. So a good marriage is based more on your commitment than feeling, because feelings change, come and go. One day your feelings might be high, the next day they might be low. If your marriage is based on that, then it's going to be a disaster. And so the Bible states that marriage is an irrevocable covenant. It's a contract to which you are bound. And so what's the wife doing? She's promising that she's going to be faithful even when the husband gets bulges and uh, you become bald. And uh, if you're like me, you're starting to go blind. And who knows, I might need bifocals soon. And so she, she <laughs> we, we make jokes about this all the time, right? Because now we've been married 25 years. So, so we remind each other of our vows and the commitment and the promises we made. And it's a, it's a big joke at the moment with us because, uh, you know, I'm not the same man I was 25 years ago, that's for sure. And so she, she's promising, though, that even if, if her husband loses his health, his wealth, his charm, uh, and even if somebody, uh, you know, somehow more exciting and younger comes along, she's committed to him. And what, what about the husband? Well, I got the same thing. Right, the husband's promising that that he's going to be faithful even if his wife loses her beauty and and she can't cook as good anymore and you know her sexual ability goes you know I still am committed to my wife even if all of those things go and my wife even loses her mind and gets dementia I'm still committed to my wife so let's be clear here. God's kind of marriage involves something that is total, it's irrevocable, it is a commitment of of two people to each other. 
So God's kind of marriage involves then a leaving and a cleaving to one another. And that is, what do we often say in a, in a wedding ceremony? It's in sickness and in health, poverty and wealth, pleasure and pain, joy, sorrow, good times, bad times, whether you agree or disagree. Right? All of that, you're still committed. And so that means you have to face your problems. All married couples have problems. No married couple is perfect yet. And so what do you do when, when, you, when you have an issue, you have a problem, you have a sin, you, you discuss it, you seek God's help, you resolve the problem because that's the only thing you can do. Divorce is not an option. You're committed to that one other person for life as long as you both shall live until death do us part. But God gives you a third thing here. Third point is that married couples become one flesh. So you leave, you cleave, and you become one flesh. So what is the one flesh talking about there? Well, at the most basic level, it's referring to the, the sexual relationship or the physical union between a man and a woman. And so that, that's, that's not something to be frowned upon within marriage because within the bounds of marriage, Hebrews 13 verse 4 says that the marriage bed is honorable. And so sexual relations, according to God, are holy, they're good, they're beautiful. He made them, he designed sex, and he told Adam and Eve to do that because he married them. But Hebrews 13, verse 4 says also that the whoremongers, the immoral people, he will judge. And so becoming one flesh involves, yes, a sexual relationship, but involves far more than that. Okay? Don't just limit it to to sex. See, sex is, is the symbol of a greater completeness and oneness. It's a total giving of yourself to another person. And so I like this definition of marriage that I found. It's in your notes. Here it is. What's, what's marriage? In your notes, that marriage is a total commitment and a total sharing of the total person with another person until death. Let me repeat that. This is loaded. Every single word is important here. Marriage is a total commitment and a total sharing of the total person with another person until death. So what does that definition look like then? Well, married couples then share everything. They share everything. You you don't just share your body. You share your possessions. You share your ideas. You share uh, even your abilities. You end up sharing your problems. You share your successes, you share your failures, you share everything. You share your sufferings. You share everything. And so marriage, what it ends up doing, my friends, is it ends up creating a team. You go from you to a team. And so whatever each one of them does has to be for the sake of the other person. Imagine how healthy is a rugby team going to be Let's say let's say you're playing you're, you're a uh, you're, you're a, a, say you're a prop you know you're one of those guys in the front row and and, and the prop in the rugby team decides you know you know I, I really like to play in the back you know I, I want to get to kick the ball and I want to score some tries and kick some goals and you know I want to I want to do something else and he just he just decides he's going to do his own thing he he doesn't care if he's part of a team well that's not going to work. And sadly, some couples do that very thing. They, 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 they've signed up for the team, and then, mm, yeah, this is getting kind of hard, so I'm going to change things up. See, my friends, you become we. You become we. It's plural. And that doesn't mean a, a total uniformity or a sameness. See, couples can be very different from each other in some respects, but but those those differences should not allow... Uh, you to become hindered in your unity and your oneness because God's purpose in your marriage is a total unity. Well, that's just a very quick uh, marriage counseling. It won't cost you a thing. 
uh, was free. But I want to end with this wonderful passage. It, it kind of obscured to a lot of people right here in Ezekiel chapter 16. So please turn over to Ezekiel 16 because as we, we think about the the mystery of marriage, by the way, Ezekiel's one of the major prophets. Uh, he He's one of the last there. So if you go past Isaiah, go past Jeremiah to Ezekiel chapter 16, we will see the prophet Ezekiel. He's going to give us one of the most graphic pictures of God's marriage to his people, Israel. This is an amazing passage. The text, I think, will help you to get a picture of Christ's marriage to his church. Right? Of course, the greater context there, the immediate context is, is God's relationship to his people, Israel. And I, I'm not into replacement theology, by the way, but, but it, is, it is a glorious picture as well uh, here of, of um, you can see even a reflection, if you will, of Christ's marriage to, to his church. But look at Ezekiel 16, verse 1. Ezekiel 16, verse 1 says, Again, the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, thus says Yahweh, God, to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live! I said to you in your blood, Live! I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you, and I covered your nakedness I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares Yahweh God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck, and I put a ring on your nose, and earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares Yahweh God. So my friends, that's what it means to be the wife of Christ. Do you see the picture? See, you were cast out like so many babies were done in the past. They would just discard them and throw them out into the field. And they would be covered in blood and dirt and would be as good as dead unless someone came and rescued that baby. What does Jesus do? Jesus walks by. He sees sees you covered in blood and dirt, discarded. He stops. He looks at you. And He chooses to love you even though it's disgusting, it's filthy, it's abhorrent. And this, this abhorred thing was, was as good as dead. And he says, my wife, my beloved, my chosen one. 
and notice the words, live. So what does Jesus do? He comes, and when he sees that the baby is now grown, and what does he do? He covers her nakedness, he washes her, he bathes her, takes away that filth, he makes a marriage covenant with her, and then he beautifies her, he prepares her to be presented to himself for the wedding, for marriage. So my friends, that's a beautiful picture of the church. The church is the body of Christ because the church is the wife of Christ. And so being the wife then of Christ means you are loved by Christ before you were ever attractive. It means being loved with this self-sacrificing love that will never end. It means that He chose us, then He raised us, and He's cleansed us, and He's done all of that for His namesake. So because of all those blessings, my friends, Jesus is worthy of all the praise and the glory and the honor that He deserves, and He deserves it now, and He deserves it forevermore. And for all eternity, may He be praised. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this eternal, lovely, glorious, spiritual relationship. We're thankful that Christ loves his bride, the church. It, it, it should be clear to us, may it be clear, of, of what has been accomplished. It's not anything in and of ourselves. We could not do any good works. We could not do anything to make ourselves alive, let alone attractive. It's all because of Him and His work here. So we are thankful for this great love, for this great grace. May we understand Your love and Your grace. And may we return the love to You, not because it's going to cause You to smile on us and love us any more than You already do, but may that just be the outflowing of our hearts. And so in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.